Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. And today, not only do I have one Swanson here, I have two of them. Hello, America. <laughs> yes, we got Ben Swanson here, Cole's older brother, right? Yeah, older, yeah. The older, smarter one. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say it, but... Yeah, I mean, there someone has to. You know, today's actually a National Sibling Day, so That's I think it's appropriate. The day of this recording, yeah, maybe not the day of release, but yeah, hmm. I think it's uh, fitting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So do I get something? Is there a gift involved? Yeah. Well, you get to be on the podcast. Hooray. Well, there's there's that, plus there's a gift basket that we give all of our gifts. Ah, yeah. Well, now I'm excited. You'll see I was it on excited the, already. This is going to be good. Yeah, you'll see it on the way out the door. Yeah, right. It's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, man, thanks for taking the time to... Uh, be here and talk to us for a little bit yeah real glad to be here i've heard so much about what y'all been doing and i think it's really neat so pleased to be a part of it it's fun so what uh what is your background tell the tell the listeners or viewers depending on what they're watching or listening to this on, and uh tell what's your background and how you got into the medical world yeah so i am a fourth year medical student currently graduating in a couple of months um which is scary because i still don't know anything but <laughs> i've been here let's say i've been in charleston for four years just for school um, and prior to that, came straight from undergrad. Wanted to do medicine for a long time, since high school. Um, and I've been wanting to do primary care for a lot of that, too. So that's what I'll be doing, family medicine, starting um, at a small community hospital in small town South Carolina in July. So real excited. Yeah, Very our cool. graduation is actually the same day. Is because it? Because they're both doctor programs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, saves money. I didn't actually go to mine. Yeah, really? Mike was working, of course. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm feeling about the same way. It's gonna be outside yeah. in May. As soon as I found out it was more than one program, I was like, Nah, it's not the move. <laughs> it's not <laughs> the move. <laughs> not the move at all. I'll do I'll do it my next go around. Right there with you. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would do go to the the hooding ceremony. I did That's that. That's the whole yeah. thing. That's yeah, you need matters. the wizard cape, and then after that, <laughs> you're good. Right. It's way too hot to be standing out there. We've got yeah. the wizard cape. I think we can just be done. Yeah, we basically uh, go to school for four years, and then we get to become Harry Potter uh, mm-hmm. wizards. Is what they turn us into. So the hood doesn't actually go up over the head, though, which is concerned. It's around the neck. I is that what that, is I that what yeah, that I did too. Work. That was the first thing I did when I put it on. I put. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled it out of the pack and I was like, "What it's is still on this? stage? You're yeah. trying to flip it over." <laughs> Watch this, Ma. Yeah, that uh, wizard costume is crazy. Yeah, Definitely I still don't better. know how that hood thing goes on. I looked at it and it's too much for me. So well, they put it on for you, sort of like a okay big ceremony. It's the, Doc, they call it the hooding. Is it the dean mm-hmm. or whoever? Okay, so they know how to do that. Whoever they slip twenty bucks to stand up there on a Friday. <laughs> Smarter people than me. Yes. So very cool. Cool. So um, why family medicine? Why family medicine? Well, I think partially because I'm, I'm a little medical ADHD. Just can't really stick to one thing at a time. So I like getting some variety. Um, I like outpatient-based care. Clinic medicine where you get time to talk to patients is great. Um, and I like longitudinal relationships, getting to treat different age groups and that sort of thing. All of it, you know. I, I went through medical school, enjoyed everything I did. So family medicine makes sense. Yeah. So what do you think about so from when you, you know, day one, you get an orientation, to now, what what was your take on med school? Was it everything you thought it was going to be? Was it the worst four years ever? What was your... All of the above. I mean, no, it was... I really enjoyed my time here. It wasn't everything... It wasn't exactly what I was thought I thought it was going to be. There were a lot of misconceptions coming in. Um, it was just as hard as I thought it was going to be, I think. They throw stuff at you, and you're kind of like drinking out of the, the fire hydrants mm-hmm. and apt description, and y'all encountered that in pharmacy school, I'm sure. Um but, you know, I think it was really good. One of the things that I didn't really imagine is that so much of medicine is watching people do things a, a certain way and just taking what you like and leaving what you don't. And I think med school gave a good opportunity to do that, to see a lot of different approaches, a lot of different styles, and start to formulate kind of who I'll be as a clinician. Yeah. Do you have uh, plans after you finish residency to do like a fellowship or anything specialized after that? Or I don't think gonna... so. I've thought about some. I've thought about some. If I were to pick one, it would probably be hospice palliative care. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that. Um, just Really? Yeah, I didn't. Know I don't that. think I told you yeah, that. That's well, National Sibling Day. There you go. Yeah. Well, I, I I knew that I enjoyed um, being able to kind of work with families as they walk through transitions like that, and then I got a chance to do some palliative care throughout this this fourth year, and really, I mean, I just had a blast with it because it you know it's a very sad time and a mm-hmm. very trying time, but um, to be able to hold people's hands as they you know deal with those emotions and wrestle with the difficulties and be able to to ease that burden is something that's that's rewarding to me so is that only in the hospice setting i know in hospitals they're like okay go ahead and consult palliative for this patient 
are there doctors on board with palliative or is that like a psychologist or something coming to talk to them? it's doctors when they say palliative it's it's palliative care trained physicians and normally um there are people with a background in internal medicine or family medicine that go through it's now it used to be that you could get board certified by just taking an exam um, but now you have to go through a fellowship. And I think it's a year to two years, depending on where you go. Mm-hmm. I'm very poorly informed when it comes to this, but mm-hmm. I think that's the deal. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, historically, GPs would do, they'd be the medical directors for hospices and things like that. Um, but they hadn't necessarily had a lot of training in it. But now it's a little more well regulated. Yeah. So back to med school. So uh, med school here, at least, is two years didactic, right? And then two, yep. two years of clinicals. Did you prefer clinicals most people do yeah 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 well each year progressively got a little bit more applicable to what we'd actually be doing i mean all of it is involved the basic sciences are important but from you know first year is all molecular type of stuff and anatomy second year you actually get to pathology and treatments um and then third year you get to start applying it so it all felt more relevant as you went along so each year was successfully more enjoyable i think yeah cool The, the problem is you still i mean to contrast medical school and pharmacy school, I feel like in pharmacy school, you all come out ready to do what you're going to be doing. Unless you're going to clinical medicine, you've got some more, you know, more training. <laughs> but you don't, I mean, at least for us, you, I would never want one of my loved ones to go be treated by a fourth year medical student without any supervision. I mean, it, yeah, it's a setup. It's a foundational knowledge for residency. I guess that's reasonable because education because med being a doctor is so multifaceted. And they assume that you're going to have postgraduate training, whereas with a pharmacist, they have to plan, even though they encourage postgraduate training, they have to plan for you not to have that. Mm -hmm. So I guess in a sense, they do have to have you prepared, but I don't think anybody ever feels truly prepared coming out of school. So No, but hopefully not wholly inadequate either. No, but I will say, you know, when I first finished, I thought I was extremely prepared. And now looking back three years later, I realized just how much stuff I didn't know mm. that I didn't realize I didn't know until right. now that I've been practicing. But it, it's it's one of those things that depends on the the practice setting too. I mean, if you're going to go work in an ambulatory care or a critical care or something like that, like someone first graduating school wouldn't have a clue as to where to begin in a real setting like that. Um, so I, I think it depends on the setting you're going to. Even community pharmacy, you feel ready, you feel like you're going to, you know, rock it out. But then when you get handed those keys for the first time yeah. and everything's on you it is a little bit different i realized i needed to ask my pharmacist where do i get the keys from because i've never (laughs) been there to open up and get the keys and i'm going to start working soon so uh. here's a quick sidebar in the in the previous episodes of this that i've seen there's been a theme song and like a cool graph that comes Mm -hmm. on the front when does that happen wait a minute post-production you're not supposed to tell them that it didn't actually happen beforehand but he never said like cue the music yeah, because I've seen that in the past. Well, we're all—it's going to be there now. So even because even though we uh, even though we say no editing afterwards, I guess there is some. Well, yeah, there's post production because yeah. I I like mess with the the look of the video and I do add some. So well, you, you mostly basically... I just wanted I just outed you. Well, I just wanted the opportunity to give kudos to the theme music and ask where it came from because yeah. I thought it was pretty good. It's a good question, actually. So I know where it came from, but my little brother wrote it. So did you really? Yeah, huh. he's uh, my 19 year old brother. He's pretty makes beats and. Uh, produces music and, and all that, so he's pretty talented. Well, there you go. Shout out to so, Mike's brother on National yeah. Sibling Day. You're yeah, welcome. There you oh, go. Boom. There you go. It's yeah. a it's all up. It's all a ploy. Tying it all in. We'll, we'll give okay. him a yeah, shout. So check him out. Tell Quell on Instagram and SoundCloud and Spotify and all those good things. All there right. you go. Happy National Sibling Day. Yeah. So he's that's who I uh, usually get most of the music that I do for Instagram or anything like that. That way I don't have to worry about anybody coming after me. All those no, cop- yeah. all those copyright things. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah. So, so for him, I mean, he can come after me, but I'm faster than he is, so let's run away. <laughs> so basically, you just wanted to rock out to the music for like five seconds. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, I was really excited about it. That's, yeah. It's coming. Well, it's we'll, post, play it, we'll play it's it out. It's post-production. Great. Yeah, we'll show it to you. Anyways. We're professionals here. <laughs> <laughs> I've gathered that very quickly. Yeah. Look at this All, beautiful studio. Yeah, well. This is exciting for me. I've never podcasted. Is that what it means when you're making one or when you're listening to be podcasting? I think podcasting well, is like actually produced. I, I don't think I there's think, a set. I think if you're listening, then you are a podcast listener. You're not currently podcasting. Not podcasting. If you're recording, then you're actively podcasting. See, I'm new to the game. I'm learning. Yeah. yeah. Well, Thank you for the clarification. Well, we have a handbook that we'll give, <laughs> we'll give you. <laughs> We've read it very yet. thoroughly. Yeah. And by that, we mean not at all. <laughs> Went through two pages. Right. I said it wasn't the move. <laughs> not the move. Oh, anyways. So, so how does this go? So 
Well, funny you should ask. This is about what we do. We say, hey, what should we talk about today? And we go, yeah, that sounds cool. And we talk about that. And, and then we then, talk about it. Yeah, we have no rhyme or reason. Uh, we don't really spend a whole lot of time in uh, kind of going over what we should be talking about. So, yeah, that's why sometimes our podcast either ends in like laughter or... <laughs> only only like a minute of laughter straight without stopping. That happens every once in a while. That was good. Well, I'll tell yeah. you what I'm interested in talking about, if yes, you don't mind. Of course, let's hit it. So I'm here in part to learn because I haven't I haven't been a clinician yet. I've been learning to be one soon. I'll have my own panel of patients. I'll be prescribing. I'll be talking to you guys a little bit. Um, and I want to understand that interaction better. I had an opportunity to study it a little bit recently as part of kind of a health economics class where I got to delve into... Um, health information technology. And so a big part of that was looking into the development of electronic prescribing and how that's progressing into prior authorization and, and that sort of thing. And so um, what I want to better understand is how, the, how we can make our interactions a little bit more efficient and how I can kind of learn the things I need to know to make um, the time valuable for y'all as well as for, for the patients and myself when we're, when we're talking through prescriptions and that sort of thing. Because we, we'll spend a lot of time on the phone, I think. Hopefully yeah. less. Or at least your nurses will spend a lot of time Yeah, nurses as well. Um, so from your end, how long have you been practicing pharmacy? Three years. Three years. Um, so I think the big kind of health information technology wave came about 10 years ago, 2007, mm-hmm. 2008, it started hitting. Have you seen any big progressions, any changes since you started? So e-prescribing has yeah, become huge. I mean, it was already there when I was first practicing, but catching it is, more. it's going, I mean, to a, my pharmacy does almost exclusively prescribes yeah. Yeah. and i mean they save so much time i don't know what it, what the laws on the books are now but i think like there are some mandates to have that software available in a lot of settings for doctors to be able to do just because it decreases errors it decreases time for transcribing for the doctors and the pharmacists or pharmacy technicians whoever's doing it um and before there were, you couldn't really e-scribe controls specifically c2s but now, at least in our state, I'm pretty yeah, sure you can. You can. You can. Mm-hmm. You prescribe C2s if you are set up with it's, and I think it's an even more secure system mm-hmm. to be set up for that. So it definitely saves time and saves people money. And there's no confusion. Well, there can be confusion, but um, some because sometimes they're sent to the wrong pharmacy and whatnot. Whereas, so some patients will say, "No, I want hard copy prescriptions, so I can take it where I want and, and shop around." Um, but yeah, overall, definitely a positive thing. Well, and it's interesting to get a pharmacy perspective on this because y'all kind of led the way, spearheaded um, adoption of these technologies. They legalized, I think they legalized the prescription of controls electronically a number of years ago, but it takes a long time for doctors to catch on to these sort of things. We're sort of stuck in our ways, I guess, um, for a multitude of reasons. But it's clear um, from studies that these things are good for patients. It increases adherence. Um, It's good for efficiency, for healthcare spending, that sort of thing. It streamlines um, at least in the prescription realm, most every part of the process. There have been other things with EMR where, you know, they thought it would cut down on, on um, useless tests, but it didn't and that sort of thing. But at least with drug prescribing, it seems to be better. And they're taking steps forward. So it's going to be exciting to see how that goes. What I looked at in particular was electronic prior authorization. So let me hear from you just first off, kind of what your experience is with prior auth from the pharmacy side. I mean, do you, you want to go for it? <laughs> bad generally okay so generally bad experiences so what happens is a patient the doctor prescribes a patient a prescription uh, because it's you know maybe the best medication for them Um, pas only come into effect if a patient has insurance of course Um, so they'll bring us the prescription Uh, we will bill it to the insurance and then they'll spit back and say no we need a prior authorization from the doctor before we're going to cover it so basically that means that Uh, The doctor has to probably fill out a one-page form saying that they may have tried this medication or this medication, basically saying that this patient is indicated for this, so you should pay for it. They submit that to the insurance company. Uh, The insurance company reviews it. Uh, There might even be a clinical pharmacist on the other side reviewing it also. I've known some who do that. Hmm. And then they'll say, um, yes, this is indicated for this patient, and they'll approve to pay for it. And then they either contact us or the patient contacts us out of exasperation and then we try to run the claim again and the claim goes through and yay now their prescription is paid for so you'll probably get a lot of grief oh every day and it's over the course of um, is it really every day 
Oh, it's actually wow. every day. 100%. And, oh, it's wow. over, multiple times a day. And it's over the course of multiple days that this process goes with the patients calling us every day. And we kind of have to, you know, we don't want to try to make you guys sound like the bad guy. But a lot of times it's like, it's well, contingent on us to get, well, it's like, yeah, we've, submitted. we've sent them information. And so until they submit it and the insurance approves it, it's out of our hand. Have you had similar, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the one, I mean, the big thing I run into is, the patients, one, don't know what a prior authorization is. Right, right. So the big comment that I always get is, well, it's authorized right there. My doctor wrote the prescription for it. So one, education and how you word, you know, the the definition of a of a prior authorization is important. Um, so I spend time with my technicians kind of going over that because if they just say it's a prior authorization, a patient has no idea what that is. Usually means. they'll say, oh, it needs a PA. And yeah. the, the patient's like, what right. I saw a doctor. About? I didn't see a PA. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And, and so, you know, I think that, uh, from that aspect, you know, it just is a communication education type of thing. Um, you know, and then from there, the places that I've seen that get the PAs done the quickest are the ones that have actual departments that are Mm -hmm. there for that process. Yeah. So like, um, Palmetto Primary Care, for instance, is a big franchise around here. There's a lot of family medicine. They're usually pretty quick about getting prior authorizations done because they have a department that handles that for like centrally and then they'll call and say hey i'm from dr so-and-so's pa department um you can rerun it through so that helps us because now we know that you actually did it uh, as opposed to five 500 prescriptions i can't just be sitting there rerunning that one every 30 minutes because it just gets lost in the confusion of everything right well they did a study that showed that for every physician there is 16 hours of staff time that's devoted to processing prior authorizations and that for every pharmacist there's another five hours at the pharmacy that they spend handling pas or talking to patients about pas does that sound about right yeah and it would take a lot longer except for the company i work for they handle it centrally so we we notice that it has a pa so that five hours is probably us talking to the patient taking phone calls um following up with insurance companies or y'all but we actually are able to just say okay it needs a pa um, and we have our central, essentially, office handling that. So there would be a lot more for us to do if they didn't do that. So, like, independent pharmacies, for example, um, don't have that luxury. And so they have to take that time, contact the doctor, fax them a form, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and follow up with them over the course of a few days to make sure it gets done or that patient's not going to have their medication. And they definitely won't have it till the PA is done, which could is easily multiple days. And a lot of this still does involve facts, which is fascinating to me, yeah. rather than doing electronically. And that's what they're kind of working on and what I was looking into is how more of this can become, if not automated, at least electronically, you know, distributed. Um, we're doing 5 billion prescriptions in the U.S. now. Most all of them are electronic. 185 million involve prior authorizations. Elect- electronic prescribing has been wildly successful at being at increasing efficiency and you would think that getting prior offs to that would would bring around the same benefits um so they're trying to get it involved in the emrs now integrated into the emrs so the reason i was looking at this in the first place is from a doctor's standpoint i get very frustrated with not being able to know what a patient's going to be paying when they go to the pharmacy i know that y'all get a lot of flack probably from patients who are showing up and they it's a lot more expensive than they thought it was going to be right mm-hmm. oh yeah do you see patients walking away and not taking prescriptions because they're kind of turned off by the, oh, yeah. by the cost? 100%. Yeah. And yeah. so that's an adherence issue too. So that's not, you know, it's inconvenient for them, but it's also a cost to the system when they show up in the hospital because they haven't taken their pills. Um, and so it seems a lot of that could be resolved if at the point of care, a physician's able to see, you know, enalapril will cost this versus lisinopril, which, is, which will cost this. And so you would think with all the technologies that we have, we'd be able to get to the point where a doctor could see that right yeah you think so because is it pretty instant for y'all yeah ours adjudicates in real time so when we send a claim it goes through immediately Hmm. um as far as you know the physician's office being able to see because you're not actually billing the prescription right um because that would then take up more time doing that yeah um there is there is a uh app available um is there it's called formulary that -hmm. you can um check the patient's insurance and it'll tell you the medication, you know, is which tier it's in. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I haven't gone too in deep, you know, in depth with it to see like where it kind of cuts off or where it misses the mark or whatever. But, um, from people that I've, I've talked to several people who use it quite often and, um, it's supposedly pretty accurate. Yeah. And it's, it's very handy, but I will say to what you're describing and to what formulary does, 
it might tell what it is and what tier it is, but not necessarily what it costs yeah, no. and not what it costs to specific pharmacies. Um, and even, even if it's covered, like, oh yeah, it's covered, but you got a $50 copay. Right. Every month, a lot of patients still aren't going to do that. There are some EMRs that take it a step further and give you a cost, but it's a static cost. It's kind of a generic, this is sort of what the company would charge, but it's not active. It depends on what kind of what kind of you know uh what kind of insurance the person has within that program and it depends what pharmacy they go to and so optimally you'd be able to get a real-time benefit inquiry is what they call them where we submit it as if we were billing and we get back what the real cost would be it's a long ways down the road but they're working on it i think it would be has that happened anywhere yet i mean you mentioned that some states might be adopting similar programs well it it's kind of on a national level it's gaining traction humana i think which are they a pharmacy benefit manager? Yeah. They? Yeah. So they're PBM and they worked with a, a company called Dr. First that has a program called My Benefit Check. And it basically did that. And they've been using that almost as a pilot to study how these things work um, and rack up evidence so that it can become more widely adopted. Recently, CVS Caremark announced that they're rolling out the same thing for any of any of the patients that deal with them. Um, at least the data will be available for providers to access if providers have that sort of thing in the system. Of course, they won't probably for several years. It's going to take a lot of convincing and marketing to get doctors to sign on as it has with any technology. But ultimately, it seems like it's, I mean, really helpful that they're uh, making that technology available for use. Yeah, I think the first, like what you mentioned, the reaction to um, them finding out the price would be, oh, well, they would have to bill for the prescription and submit an actual claim which is just a whole big thing because then you have to get like qualified to be able to bill for prescriptions, mm-hmm. which doctor's offices aren't. For instance, they bill Medicare part, um, eh, a, I a think. okay. Is the outpatient provider and we bill Medicare part D generally. Right. Um, and so they're not set up to bill Medicare part D. Um, well, that's the thing is it's not an actual billing. It's, that's what it's I'm saying. like a simulated, right? Mm-hmm. So it would have to be, it would have to be something in the middle that isn't just them saying, okay, this is covered or billing the actual claim. It would have to be, yeah, like you said, a pseudo claim that would actually spit out a real number. And so what it seems to involve is a third party that's basically integrating with the systems of pharmacies, of payers, of providers, and drawing everything in to kind of mix it together and, and spit out this data in real time. And so, of course, that involves a cost. It's going to be a cost to pharmacists. It's going to be a cost to providers to pay these third parties like SureScripts or whoever else, Cover My Meds might do it too, who are going to provide the information. And so will it be worth it? How much will it cost? These are things we don't know. But it seems like it offers some value. Yeah. See, the other big issue that I've seen as far as prioritizations that there's really no way to, I guess, combat it is, you know, you have these drug companies that will do deals with the insurance carrier Mm -hmm. and so for instance they may have a drug like for glp ones for diabetes they may have bidurion that's their preferred glp one as a once weekly dosing regimen but if you look at the actual data the trulicity uh the dulaglutide is the only one that's been actually shown to be or not the only one as of now but uh it was for a long time the only one that was approved like um non-inferior to the market leader, Victoza, which is a once daily. So it was the as only one. As far as cardiovascular weekly. effects and benefits. And right? A1C lowering. And A1C lowering. Yeah. And then when uh, semaglutide came out, now that one also is uh, non inferior and actually maybe even superior at this point. But they're not looking at the data from that. They're looking at it from a business standpoint of, okay, well, I'll cover this one, even though it's an inferior product. And that's, you know, that's something that's, that's, definitely causing an issue right. but then how do you solve that? i mean you're going to have legislation that affects a free market and that's you know, i'm not really a fan of that either so that's that's just a problem that's um i don't really know how they can fix that right so as a clinician you would want to prescribe the best drug for this patient but they're the they're preferring a different one in the class that may you know that in their mind it's like hey it's the same class and we can cover this and that's how it was pitched to them by the drug company but it might actually be a lesser medication and this is a little off the topic of the the pa situation no but i don't think it is goes at all to a bigger because, issue see i think it i think it stems into that yeah. absolutely okay because, yeah i guess yeah it does yeah the trick is cold <laughs> not calling you out <laughs> the trick is that the best drug for the patient you know in theory it's the one that performs the best in clinical trials but in practice it may be the one they can afford and have good access to mm-hmm. and will take um and so that's what we're kind of figuring out on our end and so when you're thinking about something like a real-time benefit checker, what that does for us is to say, okay, 
keeping in mind this person's situation, how much money they have, um, what their social social situation is, is it going to be better for me to be able to assess at the point of care what's going to be more affordable for them and give them what I know they will take rather than you know having them end up at the pharmacy with the number one drug but realizing they can't pay for it and me not figuring out. Because you all find out when a patient comes and isn't going to pick up their drug, you all know they're not going to take it, but we, a lot of times they won't tell us, especially right. if it's an elderly patient. If it's a 30-year-old suburban mom, she's going to call us and she's going to be But if it's an elderly person, they're just going to say, well, nah, I didn't really want to take it anyway. They'll go home and then we find out three months later at the follow-up. Right. And so if these things could be sorted out ahead of time, it's better for patients. It's better for the system. So right. that's why I'd like to see these things catch on. So you have to take into account all those things, um, what, the side effects. Um, is it going to be best for this patient with this disease state? Are they going to take it? Do they want a once-weekly injection, a daily injection, a pill? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you choose the best medication for them. But you also have to incorporate costs in there even if they have insurance. And, I mean, cost does need to be a consideration. But I guess it's what we're saying is it's just frustrating where you might get all those oh, yeah. ducks in a row and then even with the insurance, they're preferring the other the other drug, which the patient isn't going to be adherent to and they don't want to take and right. isn't the best drug right. for is them it, generally. Is, that's the problem I see with some of the newer agents is the ones in that class will all be very similar in price, but the drug company has done a deal with the insurance company. Yeah. And so they get a kickback. And so they prefer an agent that may be more strenuous to reconstitute or you know more cumbersome more side effects whatever but that's the one that's preferred and so in order for them to get it paid for you have to give them the crappier medication and that's Mm -hmm. that's you know a a rough spot so here's an interesting question i have because it at least in my realm pbm is kind of a dirty word um, kind of the shadowy figure in the background that's orchestrating all these deals and leading to prices being, you know, like they are. What, what's what's the perspective from pharmacists on how pharmacy benefit managers work and, and the role they play? I think it just depends on, you know, who you ask. I mean, I think that uh, there's definitely, just like anything else, there's some quote-unquote shady things that go on that's not that's definitely not putting the patient uh, at the center. But then if you look at how pharmacies do certain things, that's not putting patient care at the center either. Mm-hmm. It's because you have business managers at the head of most of these things. And yeah. And, and, but the, and the problem is, is you have to still run the business yeah. because if the business isn't profitable, it goes away and then no one's getting help. So I understand that side of it as well. I'm not mm-hmm. hating on the CEO or anything like that. It's just, I think that there needs to be just just more, I guess, talk about um, using evidence-based medicine to make some of these decisions for formularies so that you're not running into some of these issues more so than these kickbacks or just picking a random drug. And so I don't know if that means getting more and more pharmacists or physicians like on board that work for the drug companies in order to have them pick the best formularies. Because ultimately, with someone with diabetes, if you can lower their A1C better with one agent versus another if it cost them about the same in the long term, you, you would get more benefit from lowering their A1C with the other drug that's better versus like a short-term kickback. So, you know, if you had these pharmacists or physicians that could, you know, put this data together and, and actually present it in a picture that's like a long-term cost-benefit analysis, I don't know if that would make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know what the answer is to... Or if, if um, they had similar A1C lowering, but one might have more cardiovascular benefit mm-hmm. than the other long-term, that's going to save them money. And maybe mm-hmm. the um, effort towards more quality-based um, care and reimbursements might make a difference there. It is like, as I, it's just, just a tough thing to go to, to work around. But to your point about the PBMs and the, the big pharma, um, I might take a little flack for this, but uh, so when I think of PBM, I think of the insurance company, right? Um, and then there's big pharma, which are separate and they kind of, um, yes, I know PBMs are a little bit different than just the insurance companies, but it kind of gets things into people's heads. Um, and then big pharma is the people who have to put on the clinical trials, and then they create these new drugs and then they put the drugs out there and then they have to make money too. And to me, I have more of a salty taste in my mouth with the PBMs than I do with the big pharma. Um, because the amount of money that these pharmaceutical companies have to spend and be willing to put out like big risks up front to get these drugs approved um, and created, I don't think they get enough credit for that because FDA approval is no joke. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they have to end up making a profit or there's no one to make the drugs. And so, I mean, you know, 
for the whole extending patent thing and all that, you know, um, I, th there's definitely controversy around that, but they do need to make their money back or there's not going to be anybody to make these drugs. It, it really gets to the PBMs and the collaboration and the, um, the shady deals where a lot of my issues arise. Right, because you have to consider that you look over at, you know, England or any European country and they're paying a lot less for these drugs than we are even though the R&D costs are the same. So there's something complicating the picture, and it's hard to know exactly what it is. I will say that when we consider costs as physicians, another important thing that we haven't considered historically is not just what's the cost to the patient, but what's the cost to the system? How can right. we, we be responsible with healthcare economics at large? Because provider behavior, prescriber behavior, is going to be a big part in cutting down on costs and making it more sustainable in the future. And that picture is complicated by having all these middlemen sort of between manufacturers and between patients. It doesn't make us feel accountable because we're not really seeing prices. Mm -hmm. Y'all are seeing the prices and patients certainly don't feel accountable. I saw a patient in clinic like a year ago. Maybe it hadn't been that long. When did Zelgians come out? Um, at least 2014, I think. Okay. So it was like a year ago patient had gotten Zelgians. It's like a 70 grand medication or something. I forget if he got patient assistance or whatever. But he never took it. I mean, he didn't have any skin in the game. You know, mm -hmm. someone's paying for this Pun behind intended. the scenes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was a dermatology clinic, funny enough. Um, <laughs> so, you know, someone's paying for it, but he doesn't, he doesn't have any concept of, of what, it, what these pills mean, what, you know, what the trade-off was for this. And so, you know, he doesn't feel any compulsion to, to be adherent and to follow through with the, with the treatment plan that's been prescribed. Um, so finding some way to bring uh, some concept of the cost to, to prescribers and to patients is going to be, I think, very important in changing prescriber behavior to make it more in line with our value-based care goals. Yeah, that makes sense. And to the point, um, just a small point about being responsible with overall health care costs, um, copay assistance cards should probably be a little more controversial than they are. Um, because for one, you know, you can get this patient to afford this really expensive medication for maybe one month or six months, even a year. But then after that, they're on this medication that they like, and then they're going to have to pay a whole bunch out of pocket or come off the medication and be not adherent. That's a consideration. Also, you have to think, so some people are still getting paid when you use a copay assistance yeah. card. The people who are still getting paid, um, are potentially, um, like the drug companies might have a deal with the insurance companies, um, or uh, because they have to still pay the pharmacies and whatnot. Um, so a lot of the burden of those goes to the overall uh, healthcare insurance industry. And they're not just going to eat that money. What are they mm -hmm. going to do? They're going to put it out on other people and it's going to raise premiums. Raise premiums. Um, so that's definitely a consideration when you're thinking about giving somebody a copay assistance card. I'm not saying they're totally evil, but I think it, it, it needs to be considered because I don't think a lot of people, pharmacists, prescribers, anybody really thinks about the fact that we might be raising everybody else's premiums by getting this patient this expensive drug for a couple months. Right. And what do copays do? It puts a little bit of skin in the game for the patients. It right. may also be prohibitive and, you mm -hmm. know, and keep them from getting medications they need. So that's important. But copay cards just eliminate whatever function copays would have served. That's true. So uh, that's why they, why would they make yeah. you pay a buck 50 for a really expensive medication is because when somebody pays money for it, they feel a little more attached to it and they might be more compliant with the medication mm -hmm. for sure. Oh, well, they've shown that like sometimes free clinics that give out medications to certain patients, it's on an individualized case. Some patients will be more adherent anecdotally. Um, if they have to go and not even pay for it, just pick it up from the pharmacy um, Walmart free or, you know, Publix free, I guess, um, rather than having it dispensed at the, at the clinic, just having to put in the effort to go out and get it, um, makes them feel like they're more a part of their treatment team, you know? So there's something to that, I think. Interesting. For sure. What, um, what do you think about a model? And I've heard this and I hope I don't butcher this, but I've heard of about a model where, um, certain prescribers will have almost like a membership to their clinic to where instead of using your traditional insurance, you pay like a monthly fee or a yearly fee where mm -hmm. you can come in and you can see the physician when you need to. And so some people just like anything else. So it's more like uh, insurance through the actual prescriber. Yeah. So and skipping the middleman of the insurance. Exactly. Basically. And so you, you, if you know, you, you fall in 
you know, break an ankle, you can go to that clinic and be seen because you've been paying your monthly bill. Or, you know, if they have a dispensary or even a small pharmacy attached to that, you know ahead of time what medications you guys stock and which ones would be best so that there is no formulary changes or having to switch things around or PAs. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the patient pays that as part of their cost and then, you know, different levels or whatever their membership would be. I think it's a pretty neat thing. It's a movement called DPC, direct primary care. You you hear some subset of it referred to as concierge medicine. And so that gets a specific type of connotation as well. Are they the same thing? Or because I, I, when I hear concierge medicine, I don't think of a full clinic practice. I think of a doctor who might have like a small office in like one staff member. Right. And so to picture a specific like way this is done is is a little bit off because there's no set standard for it right now. It's kind of an evolving movement. Um, and everyone sort of does a little bit differently. And a lot of it is contingent on how the doctor sets it up. But the general idea is you're cutting out insurance. The patient is dealing directly with the doctor. And like you said, they pay a, a subscription fee. It might be 50, 100, 150 a month, depending on what service they're getting. Might be 500 a month, depending on the doctor. Might be 500 a month. Um, and that's when we're getting more into concierge medicine, perhaps. But what it does, it allows generally unlimited visits um, to the doctor. There are smaller patient panels. And so generally you can get an appointment very quickly rather than having to wait several months. Um, and you pay in cash for whatever you, ha- you have done. Um, and so a lot of ways this is good. Patients can get the attention they need. Um, if they don't need as much attention, they don't end up paying for as much. If they break an arm and come in, the ca- they only pay for the cost of the casting materials. It's eight bucks or whatever. Um, and so it cuts out a lot of the administrative burden that would otherwise add cost to healthcare. What it means, though, is that doctors have to have a little bit of a talent for organizing things like laboratory services and, and um, prescriptions and that sort of thing to have those available. And so what a, what a doctor will do to make labs affordable without insurance is they'll go to LabCorp or whatever and they'll say, look, I'll bring you the business of this whole patient panel if we can work out kind of a deal uh, on a kind of um, fee-for-service type of thing uh, to make this affordable for my patients. And so that's what they'll do. And is that ethical or is that almost like a kickback? Like you give us a discount and I'll send my patients to you. No, because the discount's to the patient, not to the uh, okay. provider is the idea. They're not getting any money in return for sending somebody there. Right. Okay. right. And so the reason LabCorp likes it is that um, often what will happen, not every time, but what will happen a lot of times is that LabCorp won't bill the patient and they're not billing insurance. What they'll do is bill the provider. So the provider will collect the fees and then pay LabCorp. So LabCorp and worrying about when am I getting my money? Am I getting my money? Do I have to pay for collections if people don't pay? They know that you're good for it, and so they're willing to give you a little bit of a discount on it. Um, and so you do that with with imaging. You do that with labs. You might work out some deals with specialists too to get colonoscopies and that sort of thing done. Um, specialty care gets a little bit more complicated, um, but overall it simplifies the process for patients. Um, and not only are you taking the administration of the insurance out of it, but also for the doctor's offices. Normally, they only need one or two staff members to handle all of this. Um, when you start getting into the realm of concierge medicine, that's when you're talking about doctors who practice traditionally for a period of time, develop a big panel of patients, and then say, hey, you have to pay these exorbitant fees to make it into select few that are going to be able to remain my patients. And so, you know, that's more of a lifestyle thing than anything else. Um, but direct primary care itself as a movement seems like something that's that's valuable and takes out the middlemen. So I think it's interesting. So would that discourage them from maybe ordering labs that a patient might need or procedures because they know that it's actually coming out of their pocket and not the patient's at that it's, point? It's not coming out of their pocket. The patient pays for the lab. They pay face value for the lab. Oh, and but the, okay. So LabCorp just bills the provider, but the patient, and then the provider bills the patient. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So the basically LabCorp likes it because the provider is the collector. Interesting. But yeah, I'll order whatever test I need to because I'm not paying for it. But I'm also, you know, they're one of my few patients that I'm trying to care for as best I can. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to bill them for something or, you know, prescribe something I don't think they need. So I'll be a little bit more careful with it. Yeah, instead of just ordering, just nah, just get all the labs. Who cares? We'll build Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, and I, I mean, this is me kind of just guessing, but I'm thinking that if if the patient is responsible for the actual payment of a of a lab, it's going to put them in a position where they maybe want to know more about what that lab is, and it gets them more involved in their actual care. That's a great point. I think absolutely so. 
And I think in a model like this where you have less moving parts and more room to kind of act autonomously and, and shape your practice, you could start to bring in other sorts of providers and get them involved and you could start to see where can I find value in education? And that's where I think pharmacists could ultimately come in. Um, and so that's what I want to understand a little bit too. Um, I hear a lot about kind of uh, the role of pharmacists in the clinic expanding along with PAs and MPs and PTs. Um, legislation is changing and that sort of thing. It seems like y'all get more exposure to sort of the legal environment and the milieu. We don't really talk about that a whole lot. Um, we know that there's the AMA lobby or whatever, and we get the get the solicitations to contribute, but we don't we don't really hear about that. So, tell me from your perspective, what should I know as a as um, a physician about how the role of pharmacists will continue to evolve? So, you know, I think the big push right now is obviously for provider status, so we can bill insurance companies as a provider. And I think the big pushback with that is the thought that it's going to take away from job opportunities for physicians or take money out of their pockets in the long run. And and I think, you know, where pharmacists are frustrated, you know, I, I, I can have a patient come in to, to me, sit down and spend 15 minutes going over their diabetes, you know, medications, they're showing them how to use their meter, whatever it is. If I was in a physician's office or if I was a physician, I could bill the insurance for that and actually get paid for my time mm-hmm. versus a pharmacist. I have no way of doing that. So I just did that for free for no reason. And so the, it, it, there's no financial encouragement other than just doing it out of the, the goodness of your heart. Right. And um, there are some pharmacists who won't. They'll say, exactly. um, I don't yeah, get just, paid for that. Just take that and, and go. Sure. You know. And, you know, that's not the way to be. But at the same time, but I understand. obviously, you have all these other things to do. You need to have some sort of a reimbursement for the time, just like any in, in it's we're coming from a spot where the pharmacist's job has evolved so much in such a short period of time that we're kind of like in this weird like limbo yeah where i don't think the general public kind of understands what even a pharmacist does and i mean i i had somebody ask me if i went to the technical school to get my <laughs> pharmacy license like i went to a two-year program and i said no i you know i Got my bachelor's degrees in biochemistry, and then I got my doctorate. And they're like a doctorate to count by fives. I mean, that's the no. And I was like, count by fives, lick and stick. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all it do. is. Big, small, big bottle to the small bottle. I mean, to people's credit, especially people who are a little bit older. I mean, in not too long ago, right. that is what we did, and that was uh, it was discouraged for us to counsel the patients. It was like, can you tell me about this medication? Well, what'd your doctor tell me? Well, they said it's for uh, my gout, and then you look down, and it's like, well, this is a placebo. Yeah, it's for your gout because placebo prescribing was legal back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so things have changed a lot. We're now, I mean, we, they wouldn't say it out loud, hopefully. Okay, in their mind, in their, their mind's eye, they would say, "Hmm, this is this these is are M and M's. These are M and M's. Here you go to help your gout." Right. So, um, yeah, in in that sense, people's uh, view of pharmacists would have to change. And if they haven't had much interaction, then I guess it's hard for them to know what we do now. And so, something that really baffles me, and. This is more just like just confusing as to how this, why this is, but I have no desire to necessarily go by doctor, but we have doctorates. We're the only group that has doctorates that does not, unless you're in an academic setting or something, like you, you we're the only ones that are like, if you go by, you know, doctor so-and-so, you're looked at as almost like pretentious or like mm-hmm. kind of a jerk. And I'm like, chiropractors do it, dentists do it. The, the PhD with carrying the thing of rats. I mean, down the line, like they do, and there's nothing wrong with it. They have a doctorate. Like, I just don't understand why it's like so yeah. frowned upon for pharmacists. And other than the fact that it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have doctorate. Yeah. I guess PT might be similar. Cause I don't know that people would generally say, see, I'm, the PTs, PTs that I know, they go by doctor as well. Really? Yeah. Well, there you go. So I don't know. And, and again, it's, it's more so just out of curiosity. Like, why right. is it like, it's like, well, you're, you're just pharmacy though. Kind of, that's where I don't like because I feel like too many pharmacists get comfortable just taking that position of like, eh, I'm mm. just a pharmacist, whatever. And it hurts the profession because then sure. we, just, we don't get anywhere. We don't grow. We don't show our worth. We just accept the fate. Right. And I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think either of us really care if somebody calls us right. doctor. I don't. But and it goes to the, the larger public perception. Exactly. For sure. Um, and going back to like what pharmacists do in a clinic setting. So um, he mentioned that we don't have provider status. So there's a lot of people who have that, and that just makes it a lot easier to bill Medicare and Medicaid. 
So what we have to do, if we see a patient, say they're on the schedule and we see them for a diabetes follow-up, we have to bill incident to the physician, um, which means the physician actually bills for that visit. We just have a protocol with the physician that says, yes, uh, this pharmacist can see these patients. I will sign off on their notes um, and it's okay for them to prescribe medications related to diabetes or related to um, their blood pressure or whatever. And, and we can follow up on that. And so, um, that is one way where the doctor didn't have to see the patient. We saw the patient. Um, and then we just made him money. Um, not only that, but within that we are, or him or her money, uh, within that we are able to bring money to the practice. Um, and then they also have a pharmacist on site who is just a resource because why wouldn't you want other healthcare providers, um, in the setting so you can ask them questions or whatever and if they want you to come in and counsel a patient and talk to them then hey we're happy to do that for sure because a lot of what we do is um in that setting is to be a resource so there will be reimbursement to the physician and the physician pays the pharmacist is that how that works so we would be like on their payroll and then okay. similar to a pa so a pa even though they can bill they can it's a little different because they are providers so they can bill independently they just have to work under the supervision quote unquote of a of a, a md we have to work under the supervision and it's not actually us billing the physician is billing it's just legal um, I see. for us to see them without the physician. So the goal would be for you to be able to bill independently so that you could do it out of a pharmacy rather than having to be... Not necessarily out of a pharmacy, still potentially in a clinic okay. setting um, because, you know, I, I still don't totally... I still think that doctors would have issues with us just seeing a patient um, because we would still have to have a collaborative practice agreement with a physician. We could just bill independently. Right, but at least to be able to bill for educational time mm -hmm. that you do in the pharmacy. So or, or it would just, it would bring us more to the table. If I'm if like you own a clinic right. and I come in and I say, Hey, I can provide diabetes education. I can provide smoking cessation, whatever the case may be, but I actually can't bill for any of it so you're gonna have to pay me for all those things and we just hope it, we break even right that's where i think a lot of pharmacists are struggling because yep. we can't bring that to the table right and and i mean so that's the future is the provider status but even now pharmacists are, are able to make it work there's a lot of clinics where they do see anticoagulation patients uh, copd asthma patients diabetes hypertension hyperlipidemia patients and bill um some of what the providers have issues with is like with medicare sometimes the reimbursements are a little less if we're the only ones that see them and the md doesn't see them so that I is see. that is a consideration um and you know we'd have to have a lot of patients on our schedule too to justify a, a full and real salary um, but there's other things that we can do like outside of that like there's st um, um continuity of care management ccm i think that's what it's called um, that's one thing that we can do that is billable under medicare that um, brings in revenue we can do other mtms and things like that that we can bill um certain uh, programs for that brings in revenue so there's a lot of ways that we can um we would just have to be able to pitch ourselves well to the practice um, and be able to work in that setting and in the pharmacy in the community pharmacy setting it's a little more difficult um, but yes if we did have provider status then there would be an option for us to do a little more um, than just MTMs and be able to bring a little revenue for that. Um, I don't know if doctors would feel comfortable with us seeing their patients in our pharmacy away from the doctor, you know, um, but there are other things that we'd be able to do. So on the legislative front, is there progress being made oh, yeah. towards provider status? It looks like it, it, there's already enough. I'm trying to remember. We get these emails. Um, it's through, man, I'm terrible with politics. It's through one of the big things, the senate or whatever and it's got to be voted on by you're laughing yeah, because i don't know anything about big things like the senate huh? yeah. um either way it has the support and it looks like in the next couple years hopefully it will be able to go through that's good it seems like a big part of that would be accumulating evidence that a pharmacist in encountering a patient for diabetes education smoking cessation that type of thing adds value and changes outcomes and so is that something that's that's kind of been developed yeah i'm sure there's studies yeah there's lots of studies that have or at least i would imagine that have to be yeah. or at least we um like so we see this patient and we free up the pas or the md to see a different patient that mm, they sure. can bill more for opportunity cost mm -hmm. um and economics and so even if we are billing and we're getting the same reimbursement as a pa um you're having another presence in the clinic who's a clinical resource um 
which they're of course PAs are clinical resources and whatnot, but it's just diversifying your workforce a little bit and having some other options and some other, um, you know, people that you can consult. There was one article I was reading about health technology and it mentioned robotics mm-hmm. in pharmacy. Oh yeah. Doing like pill counting and stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing? Oh yeah. yeah. I have a robot in my pharmacy. Do you really? They're yeah. all over the place. Yeah. See? So a I lot of, a lot of pills they will count, um, in hospital pharmacies, there's a lot of robots and a lot of, um, other pill dispensing things. But so there's like, people are like, Oh, that's going to take the place of a pharmacist. It can't really take the place of a pharmacist. Well, I saw it more in the context of it'll free up a pharmacist exactly. to attend to more clinical duties. Sure. Seems like so that, that is definitely something that it could do. I think out west, there, uh, somebody who's out west, let me know if this is a thing. But um, I've heard of people going into a pharmacy and it's a, it's a kiosk that dispenses mm-hmm. a medication to them that a pharmacist has checked like remotely from mm-hmm. a different location. I've seen which them is them. interesting. Um, and, if mm-hmm. they, and they can come up on a camera and counsel the patient on it. Or a video, a, a screen, and counsel the patient on it. I mean, it will never be fully automated because you have to have a human overseeing. I right. imagine interactions and things like generic and therapeutic equivalent substitution and that sort of thing. Right, but it would fill us up more for um, clinical duties, and unfortunately, the the jobs that it would take would be like a pharmacy technician more so than the actual pharmacist. That's probably true. The the thing I'm really curious to see, you know, I don't know what Amazon's plan is to kind of whether they're going to get in the space or not, but, you know, like, for instance, the Alexa show, if Amazon does decide to bring in all these pharmacists in their payroll and start these, you know, online pharmacies or whatever to say, hey, Alexa, let me speak to a pharmacist and have that pharmacist pop up in real time on the show or the physician or whoever. I think telehealth in general is going to be huge. But I think Amazon's already working that front, and I'm really, really curious to see how that plays out in the not too distant future. Yeah, they're doing their own like health insurance thing. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Getting their hands in everything now. Well, cool. Yeah, that was good. I'm always fascinated to learn about this stuff because I know nothing about it. I'll talk sometimes like I do, but I don't. So sorry if you get some yeah. angry fans. That's mail. what we like to see: doctors who. Who don't know anything. So. Well, mm-hmm. you remember VeggieTales, <laughs> the pirates that don't do anything? Yeah. I'm the med student that doesn't know anything. Okay. So. That was a 90s reference, I think. Yeah. yeah look, at me. <laughs> <laughs> look at you go. Yeah. That's cool. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you taking yeah, the time to do this. Me Let's on. do it it's again before you uh, head off to residency. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple of months. Again. I'd love yeah. to. Yeah. Cool. It's fun. All right, you guys. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. Happy National Sibling Day. There you yeah. go.